Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. And it was his opening sermon at that conference where he talked about the power of a good man to do a lot of good and the power of a bad man to do a lot of bad. You can literally topple empires through one bad man, one bad man. Good men can do a lot of good, bad men can do a lot of harm. Men have power, even in their absence, men have power. And we live in a father-centered world. There is a in the common grace of God and in the heart of the human being, a longing for good men, for good fathers. It's there and it's everywhere. The people in this world that rage against the patriarchy rage against the patriarchy because they long for it so much. And the reason why there is this rage, the reason why there's people with fists in the air screaming at men and the patriarchy and white colonialism or whatever it may be, the reason is because people long for good men. And this is seen everywhere. It's seen all across the world, not just in America. You look in the Western world and all of the Eastern world. You look at the North and the South, and people cry out for good men. The reason why people rage against men is for two primary reasons. We could actually throw in a third. The first is that there's a generation of fatherless boys and girls and generations of fatherless boys and girls who are very angry at their father for not being there. They're angry at their dad because their dad was not there. And this is the power of a man, even who is absent. Absent. The power of a man who is absent is seen in the lives of his children and grandchildren or the lives of the people around him. There's a wake of damage. It's inevitable. There is power that men have. It's given to us. It's wired into the universe. And we just have it. And whether you wield it well or wield it bad, you have it. You have that power. And so people are angry because they're angry that their dad's not there for them, or secondly, they're angry because they're jealous of those who have a good one. Because they see a good man, they see a good father, and they long for that. They want it. Gosh, if I had a dad like that. They long for that. And third, the third reason you could add is because men have been bad. We have not used power well. And men large swaths here, broad strokes here, men have taken the power that is given to us by God and we've wielded it poorly. Societies end up being destroyed by men who won't do what God has called them to do, by husbands that won't do what God has called them to do. Societies are destroyed by men who walk in their sin proclivities. We talked about sin proclivities of wives. Men also have these sin proclivities. We've heard this before. I'm sure if you've heard any sermon on, on men or men's issues, men's sins, sins that are unique to men, the sins of dominance and passive absence. Dominance or passivity. This is the story of mankind. Basically, you look back and you see either dominance of men or you see absence of men. So men who won't do, they're just present. They're around, but they're doing nothing. Or they're there, and they're ruling with an iron fist, and everybody around them is under their thumb, and they'll let you know it. But God has called men to more than that. God is building men into good men, and Christian men don't have the option of being a good man or a bad man. Christian men have to obey God. We have to. It's it's not an option to obey God or not obey God. We have to be good men. And we have to repent. This is what God has called us to. We have the spirit of the living God within us. We have to become good men. We have to repent in any area of sin that we're walking in. And we have to, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to obey in greater and greater degree. And so for every man in here, there's room to be a better man. For every father in here, there's room to be a better father. For every husband in here, there's room to be a better husband. Nobody has arrived at being the perfect or the best husband. That spot is reserved for Christ and Christ alone. You and I, husbands, we struggle to be the men that God has called us to be, and we walk away from the areas that we're sinning in, and we walk toward all the areas that God is calling us to. One of the areas and one of the ways that, uh, that, uh, that good men can demonstrate 
what God is doing in them, and bad men can grow in, is in this area in the institution of marriage. This is what we're talking about specifically today. God invented marriage, and God tells us how it works. So we're at this seminar. If we do what God tells us to do in marriage, things go, go well for us. If we don't do what God tells us to do in marriage, things don't go well. So men, if we just plug our ears, or if ladies, you're only hearing what God says to your husband, or husbands, you know, you, all you heard was what God said to your wife two weeks ago, then you miss what God actually says to you. So it's our responsibility, men, to open up our ears and hear what God has to say to us. So we need to repent, and we need to do what God has called us to do. Now, uh, we are where we are today for several various reasons down throughout history. And if we want to do a quick history lesson about why we're at this place right now where men are hated, okay, where men are hated, and where men in our country have done a lot of terrible things in the past, we have to think about why things are the way they are. Now let's go back to about the mid-1800s, and we're going to do a quick historical survey from 1848 to where we are today, and it kind of helps us understand the landscape of marriage, the landscape of men in America, the landscape largely also of women in America. In 1848, we have the first wave of this thing called feminism. Because men and women were already in rebellion to God in the 1850s, and really all the way back to the Garden of Eden, there is this thing that popped up called first wave feminism from 1848. Then you get second wave feminism, third wave feminism, into the fourth wave of feminism. And all of it has been built on demonic, shaky grounds from the beginning. Anything that they got right was a consequence not of the foundation of feminism, but because of the common grace of God. The foundation of feminism from the beginning was rotten to the core. It was in rebellion to God. Then in World War I from 1914 to 1918, what begins to happen is you get the fracturing of a society and the family because men are going to war, women are staying back and having to do everything. Men get back to war, back from war, and then in the 1920s, late 1920s, down through the 30s, you have, all through the 30s, you have the Great Depression. And you have a decade long of very difficult difficult living in the household. It was just a difficult time. World War II happens in 1939 to 1945, and again, the wives were having to do everything. They were expected to do everything in the home, and now here they're working in the factory. They're doing everything they can to contribute to the war efforts, and the men were gone. They come back. These men come back, and they're completely shell-shocked. They've seen their friends die in front of them, get blown up in front of them. They're emotionally disconnected, and now you get to the understanding of why some of the men are the way they are today. But it has to do also, not just with sociological understandings of, of, of why things are the way they are, it has to do also with this thing called sin. These men come back from World War II, and so my dad is a baby boomer, and most baby boomer men and women, their dads, most, this is broad strokes here, most of their dads worked really, really hard, but they were emotionally disconnected. So if you talk to anybody that's a baby boomer, most likely they had a dad that could not say, I love you. And if they hugged, it was like at a real big distance and it was like a hug, like a, a pat on the back. It wasn't a big bear hug. Some, some, some clearly, again, as we're painting with these broad strokes, were men that were able to be affectionate. They were able to say, I love you. But in large part, baby boomers had dads that were just emotionally disconnected. They knew how to work. They knew how to get the job done, but that's it. That's all they could do. And instead of these men who are shell-shocked men, instead of them coming and bringing their pain to Christ and walking in obedience, they came home emotionally distant, broken, and unrepentant. Emotionally distant. And sadly, taking their aggression and rather, have, rather than having their aggression come out in positive ways, I was just talking, you know, that there's generations of baby boomers that saw abuse. Men who didn't know how to used the aggression that God had given them in a right and holy way and used it in an ungodly and terrible way and even would lay hands on their wives in a sinful and an abusive manner. So at the same time that feminism was gaining speed along with modern technologies that made household work easier, you have these men who are a mess, who didn't know how to work hard, but couldn't do much else, and then you had more and more feminism. So men and women, after decade after decade of confusion, and after decade of decade of being in one ditch or the other for about 100 years, end up arriving in the last you know, 30 or 40 years in this 
mess that we see today. So to the point that God's ways for marriage, as we've been looking at it over the last two weeks or last three weeks, to the point that God's ways for marriage may seem wrong or weird to you, depending upon how old you are or how you grew up or what your parents' marriage was or was not like, you're going to have some baggage. Like we all come to the scriptures with some baggage of what we've experienced, what our parents were like, what our grandparents were like, what the culture of our home was like. And the responsibility of all of that from the mess of sin that we have seen, that we have seen and walked in, we have to turn to the Lord then and say, God, take this baggage, take this debris, which is 150 years and then going again back 6,000 years, this debris of sin that's been caused by men and women in rebellion to God and the marriages that we've seen in our country that have not worked the way God would have them work to the point today that there's a complete erosion of marriage to where the state says marriage is something different than God says marriage is. We have to move all that debris. We have to get that baggage out of the way and we just have to humbly submit to God's word. And that's what we've been trying to do. Wives being obedient to God as wives, husbands being obedient to God as husbands. So that's our call. And we see specifically we have commands to husbands in today's passage. Now, the first word that we get is this word likewise. Josh did a great job when he preached a month ago about talking about the importance of likewise. It's, it's in, in, on the heels of everything that's just previously been said. And this likewise means in the same way that everybody else before 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, or, or verse 7 is under authority, also husbands are under the authority of God. So when we hear likewise, that means just like God had word for wives, children, slaves, God has words for husbands. And husbands are under the authority of those words. So whatever God says to the husband, that means he's under that authority. And he has to listen up. He has to realize that he is a soldier in the Lord's army and he gets his marching orders, not from society, not from what he has inherited from his father or his grandfather in either dominance or passivity. The husband hears from God, hears God speak and says, yes, Lord, this is what I'll do. This is what I strive for. Likewise, husbands. We see that right there in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands have to understand that we are not above God's law. We are always under law. We are never a law to ourselves. That means the life of every man in this room, even if you're not married, most likely men, you will be married at some point, this is the same for you, is that you are the under the authority of the God of the universe. You cannot see yourself first and foremost of the maker of your destiny, of being in charge of your life. You are somebody that's in subjection to a holy God. You are subject. You are a slave to King Jesus. You owe all of your life to him. So all of us, as men, have to respond accordingly. So here's the command to us. Live with our wives in an understanding way. Now, why is this command given to husbands? When we hear commands, specific commands, we've been working through this. So I want you to be thinking this and trained in this. When you hear questions in the scriptures or commands in the scriptures, the reason the questions or the commands are there is because these are issues that people are dealing with. And if there's a command to husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way, what it tells us is that husbands have sin propensities in this particular area. Husbands struggle to live with their wives in an understanding way. That's why we have to be told to live with our wives in an understanding way. Now, we had the joke about this a couple weeks ago because, you know, Terry, and it wasn't a distraction. It was perfect wherever Terry is. You know, lean out, and Terry and Vicki were talking about this. Uh, Josh and Jamie mentioned something about this in small group, and Jordan and I have talked about this a lot. There's times I'm talking with my wife, and not times, all the time pretty much, where I expect her to understand things the exact same way that I understand things. And if she doesn't, I get confused as to why in the world you don't see it the way I see it. Babe, if you were right, then you would understand how I see it. But because you don't see it like me, clearly you're seeing it wrongly. And instead of living with my wife in an understanding way, I don't live with my wife in an understanding way. Husbands struggle to understand their wives and live in accordance with that understanding. So we have a tendency to think that our wives should be just like us. That there's a tendency to think that our wives should be just like us. Um, but uh, 
we married a woman, right? Praise God. Uh, that's a good thing. Men should want to marry, marry women. Newsflash. We married women. And women are not men. So they're going to be thinking things differently than the, we, the way we think things through. They're wired differently. They're made differently. They're built differently. And men, l- let me uh, just say this. I'm not up here preaching ever because I've got all of this figured out. I'm not up here saying, here's how you live with your wife in an understanding way. I've got it worked out perfectly and figured out perfectly because Jordan will tell you that I don't. I'm trying to grow in these areas just like you are. But because I'm under authority like you are, I have to look at a verse like this and say, okay, God, help me to live with my wife in an understanding way. Help me not expect her to think just like I think, to do things the exact same way that I do things. And so we have to come to the Lord together and please don't think that I've got it all figured out. Um, Jesus is the only perfect husband to his bride. The only one. And so there's going to be times that we struggle with this. There's going to be times that I struggle with this. And not just struggle, that we sin in this particular area where we don't live in an understanding way. So in real life, here's how this works out. Here's how it works itself out. In real life, let's just say you and your wife are in a disagreement. So you're just going to have to imagine this, right? Because it happens so rarely. And uh, you think about how, and you're just going through in your mind about how she just doesn't understand what you're saying. And you think the issue is she just doesn't, doesn't understand. Like she, she literally doesn't get what you're saying. Because if she got what you're saying, certainly she would agree with you. And so you've got the little you know, justification thing going on in your mind of, of why you're right. And I'm really good at that. I know why I'm right. And I know why she's wrong. And I try to just get her to understand that. You know, like, honey, you're just wrong. So you're working through in real life. And uh, what, what's the command then? In that moment, what is the command? And it doesn't mean that your wife is always right. That's some of the silliest advice anybody could ever give. If you're an older gentleman giving counsel to a young, younger man, and say, if you ever say, this is the one thing you need to know, your wife is always right, that is a lie, and men don't believe that at all. And ladies, you shouldn't want that. You shouldn't want to be treated like that. Uh, Talk about mistreatment. You want somebody in your life that just always just lets you think and believe everything you think and believe and and, and be in charge of everyone everywhere you go. Um, You don't want somebody like that. So you're in a real life disagreement and uh, you're thinking about how she doesn't understand what's going on and you're getting frustrated. So what do we do? Okay. Um, We have to be understanding of her. So what's this like in, in real life then? Um, we understand that our wives are women and that they do not think and reason like us. They're uniquely different. Okay? We have to understand in that moment that my wife is built differently than me. She's given to me as a helper, not as a cheerleader. Okay? She's not here just to say, you're amazing, you're awesome, way to go, everything you do is awesome, and I love you, and did you hear me say that you're amazing? That's not what we should expect for our wives, from our wives. They're given to us to help us, and they're designed that way for our good. They can't help us if they're the same as us. They cannot help us if they're the same as us. Adam in the garden was commanded to work and keep this garden, to bear fruit and multiply. He couldn't do that without Eve. She came in, God created her, crafted her, made her, delivered her to Adam here, and he says, behold, here is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he looked at all the animals and was like, no, there's nothing here that's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, nothing here that can be my helper. And God brings the woman, Eve, to Adam to be his helper. And she's uniquely designed as a woman. And men, we have to understand that. It sounds so simple, but just to remind yourself, she's a woman and she's different than me can be so helpful in those times. This is our command from God. She is designed this way for our good, and we have to fight to understand our wives. We have to understand our wives. Michael Foster has been helpful in this a couple times, talking about how women talk and men talk. I'm going to quote him, quoting him here in just a little bit. But our wives can be, um, instead of direct, some, some wives, obviously these are broad strokes here, are very direct. 
So you don't have to wonder what they're thinking about. But most wives, most women speak rather indirectly. So they're going to say things like, I'm cold. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay. And what she means is, can you give me a blanket and go turn the heat up a couple degrees? But I just heard her say she's cold and it's like, okay. Instead of asking me, can you get me a blanket and turn up the heat two degrees? She'll say, I'm cold. And then I've got to try to decipher this and figure this out. Okay. And so I don't understand why she does that. It's indirect. But here's the, the challenge for me as a husband is to try to understand her and then do what my responsibility are as a husband and take care of her. Men and women are uniquely different. So um, even if we disagree, and even if we come to a point of disagreeing, we have to disagree in a way that's not condescending. If we're to live understanding in an understanding manner with our wives, let's just say we talk through this, we work through this, I'm trying to understand, I still don't understand, and we just we end up coming to a disagreement. In that moment, if we're going to live with her in an understanding way, we don't disagree in a condescending way. So we should never make our wives feel less intelligent or like they're understanding this in a different way is somehow wrong unless it is explicitly wrong according to God's word. And then she would be responsible for changing her position. But if it's something that she's trying to help with and seeing differently from a different angle or different perspective, we should never ever be condescending to her. We should disagree with her in an understanding way. And we're told that we are to show her honor. Show honor. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Show honor to the woman. So husbands are commanded by God to honor our wives. Now this kind of sounds a little bit different from Ephesians chapter 5 because in Ephesians chapter, chapter 5, husbands are told to love our wives and wives are called to respect their husbands. So there is to be respect. Wives are to respect their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. In this passage, beyond love, we are called to honor our wives. So you add this as you kind of put systematic categories together about the husband's obligations to his wife. There's love and there's also honor. We are to honor our wives as the weaker vessel. We'll get to what that means here in just a second. So we are to live with them understanding manner, or understanding way and to honor our wives. So this is in a contrast then. It's contrasted with what sinful husbands do or what bad men do. So we want to work through this in the negative command and, and look at it from the negative so we can better understand the positive. So what are some ways that sinful husbands dishonor their wives? And they dishonor their wives by one or two ways, harshness or passivity. That's that dominance or the absence. So here's a few ways that husbands can dishonor their wives. And as you're thinking about the negative view of this, think about what it looks like in the positive way. A husband could dishonor his wife by speaking harshly to her. So in your tone, tone matters. If your tone is a tone of harshness, your words may be words of kindness or neutrality, but the way you deliver your words to your wife can be delivered in a manner that is dishonoring. It's harsh. And there are many men, when you get tired or whenever it may be, I deal with talking harsh to my wife or to my children. Instead of being kind and understanding and just calm and bring calm into the room, like, well, honey, why did you say it that way? Or why, why, did, why did you understand it that way? Or whatever it may be. And you speak, instead of honoring to your wife, you speak in a dishonoring manner to your wife. And this can happen with your kids as well. Okay, what's another way to dishonor your wife? You can dishonor your wife by speaking down to her. We're going to find out here in just a second that she is an heir of the grace of God with you. She is not less than you. Therefore, if we speak to our wives in a manner that speaks down to them as if they're our children. If we do what, what was it, uh, uh, John Wayne um, in these old movies, it was really bizarre where they would like spank their kids and then they would act on the movie, they would actually like spank their wives. Have you seen that? Like talk, talk about a different day, you know, like weird. Okay, honey, come get your spanking. You know, it's like, man, okay, that's a little bizarre. Um, do you remember the scene where there's a little boy that's just, that this mom is just like this helicopter mom and doesn't let her boy do anything, doesn't know how to swim, and John Wayne hears that he doesn't know how to swim, and he just goes and picks up the boy and throws him in the lake and says he'll figure it out. You remember that scene? And she's like, oh my gosh, and freaking out. And then John Wayne comes, and he acts, she's like, I don't know how to swim. And then he looks at her, and she goes running off because he's going to grab her and throw her in the water too. 
different day. And we look at that and, and we look and say, okay, yeah, there's some wrong things about that. You know, there's some right things about that era as well, because if somebody wanted to speak in a dishonoring way or somebody wanted to mistreat their wives, uh, that husband would do something about it. Or if a lady walked into a room, every man in that room would take step out of their chair and move back and step up. There's some things that we can learn from the past and things that we can unlearn from the past. Honor our wives. We don't speak down to our wives. Um, another way to dishonor our wives would be to require her to make a certain amount of money to live in a certain lifestyle that we want to live. So we can look at our wife and say, honey, here's how much we need to make. Go do your part. The obligation of providing for a household is not laid upon the woman. And so when we dishonor her by requiring her to go out and to make this much money so we can live in this kind of house or drive these kind of cars, we are dishonoring her. If you need more money, make more money. You say, well, I don't know how. Get a different job or get another job. Or spend less, yes, spend less. Be wise. Another way to dishonor your wife would, to, would be to live with her and not recognize her weaknesses. So if you, if you don't recognize that she's different than you, uh, and you don't recognize the weaknesses that she has, and you expect her to be strong in areas that she's weak, well, you're going to dishonor her. Uh, another way to dishonor her would be to watch her sin and not say anything about it. She is a co-heir with Christ. And if she's sinning on your watch and you're not saying anything about it, you are dishonoring your wife. And that can require men. This is why being a husband, like God's man, the man God has called you to be, requires you at times to confront your wife and say, honey, that's not right. And if you are not willing to do that, you will live with her in a dishonoring way. Um, another way to dishonor your wife would be requiring her to functionally lead the home. Meaning, you make a few big decisions here and there, but you just let her make all the other decisions and you don't even talk to her about it. Just leave it all to her as if it doesn't matter or as if you don't care what she does or doesn't do. We have to pray and work through and have conversations and then help. There's going to be decisions that your wife makes as the homemaker of the house that she has full reign over, full responsibility over. And yet, if we don't talk through that with her, if we don't help her through those things, we dishonor her. Also, a way to dishonor our wives would be to make all the decisions without talking to her. That's not leadership at all. We have to. I mean, we're one flesh. If we don't talk with our wives about the decisions that we're being, it's foolish. She's your helper. And so we're, we're not in charge in that way. We are in charge in a unique, new, unique way that God has called us to be in charge. And so as our one flesh, as we're talking with our one, one flesh, through the decisions that ultimately rest upon our shoulders, we have to work through them with her instead of just making the decisions and saying, here's what we're doing. There's going to be times, certainly, that we have to make tough calls, but it's not leadership to make all the decisions, treating our wife as a child. Another way to dishonor our wives would be to treat her well in public, but bad in private. To speak tenderly with her in public and harsh with her in private. Your wife sees that and will despise that about you. And she will, it will make it so hard for her to respect you if you are one way in public and another way in private. She sees that hypocrisy. And she's commanded to respect you. And if you're living in a disrespectful manner, how hard is that for her to respect you when you're not living respectable? She still has to respect you. And you're living as a hypocrite. And so we have to, as men, be the same man everywhere we go. We don't have our church face, our work face, and our at-home face. We have one consistent manner in which we live, and it's this manner of holiness. Another way to dishonor our wives is not striving to love her as Christ loved the church. Another way to dishonor her would be to put all these conditions upon her actions that will, will earn your affection. So I'll love you unconditionally, baby, if you do your part. If you 
submit to me. If you do what God's called you to do, then I'll do what God has called me to do. No, the man, the husband, leads in the family and leads in the marriage doing what God has called him to do regardless of what our wives do or don't do. So there's no conditions in the marriage to these commands. We live with our wives in an understanding way and we show honor to her regardless. Even if she's speaking dishonoring of you, even if she is struggling with respecting you, you still honor her. It's unconditional. We love unconditionally as Christ loves us. So what if we just heard these commands, men, and said, well, I don't like doing that. I don't want to do that. That's not going to be fulfilling to me. Well, here's what men have to do with one another if we're like, I don't want to love my wife like that, or I I would love her like that, uh, but she doesn't do this or this or this. Here's what we do. We need to call each other to repent. Uh, We need to mock one another until we do and say, well, hey, dummy, it doesn't matter what you feel like. Do what God's called you to do. We come alongside each other and we help one another out. We don't let each other be dogs to our wives ever. We have to encourage one another and challenge one another in this. Why do we show her honor? Well, in this particular passage, it's because that she's the weaker vessel. She is the weaker vessel. Now, before we get politically correct here, this is what God has to say. Ladies, wives, you are the weaker vessel in the marriage. That's not a bad thing. Weaker vessel doesn't mean that you are weak. It means that you are weaker. You are strong in the ways God has made you in your femininity as you obey God, but you are weaker than your husband. And we're told to honor her because we are co-heirs of the grace of life. So two reasons we honor our wives. We're going to work through these. Look at it in verse 7. We honor the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So we honor her because she's the weaker vessel and because they are heirs of the grace of life. So weaker vessel. Husbands, here's the deal. You are stronger than your wives. That's why you open the pickle jar. And every man, it's like this, this, this small, in, in, you know, in your heart when your wife's like, honey, can you open this? And you're like, yes, I can. <laughs> you hand that back. Did anybody see that cooking show? There's a scene that was floating around where this little girl that was on this cooking show, she's just this petite young woman and she couldn't open this jar and she looked around and found her dad in the audience and ran up to her dad in the audience and the dad opened it for her real quick and then she came and she had the ingredients to do what she needed to do. Anybody see that? It's kind of cool. So men, are hus- our husbands are stronger than our wives. Now, when we say that, does it mean that there's not some marriage out there where the wife is stronger physically than the husband Probably out there, but what we're saying here is that, uh, and you know, is there a a situation where there's a quadriplegic husband? There's all these exceptions that people want to call to. Well, it doesn't mean every, okay, got it. But here's what God says. Men are stronger than women. I've joked about this before. If you just put that on the internet, you know, put that on Facebook, and I just typed, men are stronger than women. Have a great day. It would be entertaining, you know, and you'd have all these exceptions. We honor them by recognizing that, that our wives are weaker than us. Now, Driscoll has gone off the deep end, but years ago, uh, Driscoll, tell you what, he had so many great things to say. One of the things he talked about is that in talking about a weaker vessel, this is an image of some sort of, of plate or some sort of goblet. This is a, a vessel which is used for, for eating or drinking. And this is a, an idea of a thermos and a porcelain teacup. Okay? Men are like a thermos, he said, and women are like a porcelain teacup. There's different functions with a thermos and a, and a teacup. When you're speaking to men, you speak to men as, as if they're a thermos. You can throw a thermos against a wall. You can kick around a little bit. You can beat it up. You can call it Nancy. You can do whatever you want to do to it, and, and it survives. And it keeps, we've talked about a thermos here before too, where it, that it still functions in the way it functions, and there's character that's added to, the, to that thing as it gets beat up a, a little bit. And for the lady, you, if, you threw a, if you threw a porcelain teacup into a wall, 
it breaks. It's weaker. It's not intended to handle that kind of, that kind of treatment. And so men have to understand that we are built stronger and we're built to protect what is valuable. That's why men are protectors of their home. A man has to understand his strength and use it in an understanding way with his wife. That's how he honors her. When a man uses his strength to harm his wife, he's doing the work of the devil. He's looking at God and saying, I will not use my strength in the way you call me to use it. I will actually use it in the opposite way, and instead of protecting, I will harm. One of the things we try to do with our sons is teach them that God has made them strong to protect and not to harm. That's why God has built them the way he has built them, to protect and not to harm. You know, there, there are things that are obvious about this that we know just in, just again, in common grace, and you see this in every single society, men protect their family. And that's why if somebody's breaking in the house, the man has the obligation to step up, get out of bed, and go see what that was. And it was just the ice that was coming down out of the ice maker in the refrigerator. But it sounded like an intruder, so you know you've you got your packing and lights are on and it's just the ice machine. But men are called to protect their wives. Um, so we honor her when we recognize that our wives are weaker. They just are. <clears throat> These differences are also demonstrated in the way we talk to one another. Michael Foster says it like this. He says that men call each other names and don't mean it. So that's why we call each other. You get a group of guys around, we'll go down to this river trip, and we're calling each other. That's why when I got sick with COVID, Tyler was texting me, you know, get up, Nancy. I was, I was working in the yard when I was sick. And you, you do that, and you're like, man, I'm thankful for friends like that, you know? That's just so kind that he would, you know. Like, he's a good friend. Because that's how we talk with one another, right? I mean, that we, we get each other, we gig each other. We call each other names. You know, we don't like curse at one another. But uh, when Ryan and I are together, I mean, we just we make fun of each other all the time. And Tara thinks that, that Ryan's offending me I'm, all the time. She's nodding right now. And Ryan, Ryan calls me funny names. And I, it's just, that's Ryan, you know? That's how we talk to one another. I don't see ladies talking to each other like that. They don't. It's demonstrated. The differences of men and women are demonstrated in that. Michael Foster says, Quoting him again, women compliment one another, but don't mean it. <laughs> so men talk harshly with each other and don't mean it. Mean it. Women compliment one another and don't mean it. Um, this is also evident in Lady and the Tramp. Okay, the, the old movie, Lady and the Tramp, they're having a baby shower. And the two rooms are separated. The men are together and the women are together. And the ladies are talking to each other, and they say the word radiant like 15 times in, the world, in, in a row, whatever the, the, the mom's name in that movie is. They're like, you just look so radiant. You look so glorious. You're glowing. Your skin. Oh, they're just talking. And uh, it scans over to the scene where the men are talking to each other. And the man says, you old dirty dog, you look like death warmed over. <laughs> and it was just evident how different men and women speak to one another. If a man, in his strength speaks to a woman like he, he speaks to a man, he's speaking to her in a dishonoring way. This is demonstrated in so many different ways. That's why boys get together and wrestle, and girls get together to dress up and do tea parties. Men are aggressive, and aggress aggression is good. It's God-given. It's meant to be directed. We need men to be aggressive. We, need a, we don't need men who are like women. That's why our military today is a laughingstock throughout the world. It's an absolute laughingstock. When you bring standards, PT standards, and all that kind of stuff down, you become a laughingstock. You think Russia is terrified right now of the United States military? Like We're like the wokest military in the world. Men are called to be men in their aggression and to put that aggression in the right place. And women are built to be sympathetic. When we talk about the temperament of men and women. Men are also stronger in the area of emotions than women are, which helps us in the ways that we need to live as men and women. So women are more nurturing. When your wife uh, is 
taking care of your son after he got a, a skin knee and your son is hurt. You're like, you're all right, dude. Put some dirt on it. And your wife's like, baby, come here. You know, there, there are reasons why God built us the way he built us. Also, in generalities here, men can handle the pro- appropriate suppression of feelings and passions and push those down and do what needs to be done in a way that women in general cannot. And so we're built differently and we have to recognize that. So we honor our wives in our words, with our strength, when we speak to her and live with her and show her honor as the weaker vessel. When we talk to our wives, we don't talk to, like, we don't talk to them like they're our buddies. We don't expect them to think the way our buddies think. And secondly, we honor her because she is a co-heir to the grace of life. Your wife is your one flesh. God did this. You have a covenant with God between you and your wife. And you made vows and God was present in those vows. And you promised to live the way God would call you to live as a husband. And God will hold you accountable to that. She is your one flesh. She is not first and foremost, although you should be friends. She is not first and foremost your your buddy. She is not first and foremost some sort of lesser than than you. She is a co-heir with Christ with you, and she is a sister in the Lord. She belongs to Christ. She has equal standing in Christ with you as your one flesh. Now, you and your wife don't share genetic Components. You don't share the same DNA, the blood DNA. You and your children do. And yet, you are not one flesh with your children. You're one flesh with your wife. You have blood that binds you together more than physical bloodlines. You have the very blood of Christ that has brought you together as one flesh. You are not one flesh with your children. You're one flesh with your wife. She is a co-heir. No blood relation except for the blood of Christ, which is thicker than the blood of your family line. In Christ, God has done this. So we show honor to our wives as we live out our obligations under this covenant that we are a part of. We dishonor God when we dishonor our wives. And there are consequences for that. We dishonor God when we dishonor our wives. If we refuse to obey and be the men that God has called us to be, in turn, this takes time, okay? We're still living with our wives and understanding, living in an understanding manner, this is going to be just like all the commands of God to us. We, we get slowly better with this over time. We know what to do. The hard part is implementing what you know to do, right? Isn't that the most difficult part of the Christian life is you know what you're supposed to do. And now the most difficult part is living it out is now I, I need to obey what I know I need to do. So you might be driving in the car on the way home and not being understanding with your wife. And yet, you know, you're called to be understanding with your wives. Or ladies, as you're hearing about submission, knowing that you're to submit, and yet why is it that I'm still trying to pull the levers here? And so we know what to do. The hard part is living that out. But if we refuse to work toward that, if we refuse to repent for not living with our wives in an understanding manner, there are consequences to that. And they're very serious. Some husbands in here who have felt like they are just distanced from God, like there's this chasm with God in their life relationally, just, just day-to-day experience of life with God, where it just feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. It feels like, you know, God, where are you? It, feel, it feels like we we've used to have this, this communion. I used to commune with you, and now when I read and when I pray, I'm, I feel like there's this distance here. And I know I'm justified, I know I'm right with you, but there's this distance here. Well, there's a reason there's a distance there if you're not going to do what God has called you to do in the household. If you're not going to be what God has called you to be in the home, you can be a great worker. You can work up the ladder. You can be respected by everybody. In fact, most workaholics are. They're respected by everybody except their family and God. Being a workaholic impresses a lot of people. But it does not impress the people who love you the most. So you can work up the ladder. You can be this hero to everybody out there and a villain inside your home. And men like that destroy people around them. You may experience experience that. You may be that guy. You may have experienced that with your dad or with your grandfather. So what are the consequences of refusing to be the men God has called us to be in the home? Well, we have clear word here. 
since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I was working through this, and a part of me struggles with this verse here, okay? Thinking that if we're justified, if we have positional standing as children of God, we've been adopted into the family of God, if we can boldly approach the throne of grace and enter into the holy of holies, how could my actions then, when I have the imputed righteousness of Christ, when I have the Spirit of God within me, somehow my actions then, how could they bring this friction with my heavenly Father where my prayers are being hindered? Where it's like, well, it feels like, where's, where did my prayer life go? Why does it feel like prayer is the, just drudgery? Why can I talk to other people but not talk to God? And so I was working through this and reading commentaries, and uh, some commentaries just stated it plainly. If you're not going to be the man God has called you to be, God will literally not listen to you. He just won't listen. And I don't think that's what it means. In fact, I think John Calvin gets it right here. And here's what he says. For God cannot rightly be called upon unless our minds be calm and peaceable. Among strife and contention, there is no place for prayer. Here's what I think this means. I think it means that men who are not being who God has called them to be, naturally there's going to be contention in the home then. If I'm, going to be, if I'm not going to live with understanding, that means there's going to be strife and contention in the home. So I think... In that moment, we still have equal justification as before. We still have access into the Holy of Holies. But because of this contention, because of the consequences of my sin in real life, right in front of me, in the home, because of that, I don't feel this communion with God. I don't feel this fellowship with God. And my prayers are hindered because there's this strife right here in my home. And I come before the Lord and I'm distracted I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with my wife. I'm frustrated with why things aren't going the way I want them to go. And as I go to the Lord in prayer, I, I feel that God is not even hearing me. I, I sense that communion with Christ is gone. And it's not as if our actions destroy any standing that we have in God or that we're no longer sons of God or we no longer have access into the Holy of Holies, but believe it when God says that our prayers are going to be hindered because they will be. And if you want to destroy your experience with God and your communion with God, and if you want to live in this perpetual state of thinking, you know, back then... I really had a prayer life. Back then, I really sensed that I didn't just know things about God, but I actually spent time with God. Back then, and always trying to get back, back to that point, when there's this strife and refusal to live with your wife in an understanding way, you will not commune with God if you refuse to live with your wife in an understanding way. If you refuse to honor your wife, you will not live in communion with God, and your prayers will continually be hindered. And so it's one of those two. It's either how I just described it, or it's God saying, son of mine, my child, I will not listen to you until you obey. Either way, it's a terrifying thought. There are consequences to our actions in marriage. Um, you know, if you heard Driscoll preach this sermon years ago, it was uh, when he started screaming at guys, you know, how dare you do this? And there's a place for that, how dare you do this? But here's the response that I want here. We, we, there's a lot of good men here. There's a lot of good women here. But for every man here, we can grow. There's things that we need to repent in, right? I mean, we have these conversations, me and my wife, and I, I have areas, and she has areas in her life, both of us, that we can grow in. And so when I hear this sermon, I'm always sitting under the authority of God's word. As a husband, I have to hear these words. So as I'm working through that this week, and as I'm working through that and now preaching this, I've got to think, okay, practically speaking, let's get boots on the ground. What do I need to do now? I've heard this. I've heard God's word. What do I need to do now? So just, it's just simple, okay? Um, number one, repent. If you have been dishonoring to your wife, if you speak down to your wife, if you expect her to be strong in all the areas that you're strong, then go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And then go to your wife and say, honey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I was not living, living with you in an understanding way, and I've been showing dishonor to you by acting like you're supposed to be just like me. Please forgive me. 
That's practical repentance. And then from there, praying about it. Get, get up in the morning. God, help me today to live with my wife in an understanding way. Help me to recognize that you've been, you've been gracious to me by giving her to me and that she's my one flesh. Help me to live with her in an honoring way today. Help me to bring joy to this house today, not bring contention to this house today. Very practically. So repent. Secondly, in repentance, repentance is always incomplete if we're not looking to Christ. The life of a Christian is one of continual repentance. It's looking away from your sin, turning from your sin, but it's turning to Christ. And you're recognizing there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Jesus, thank you for forgiving me here. Jesus, thank you that you are the perfect husband to your bride. Thank you that I am counted as your son, Heavenly Father, because what Christ has done for me. So you turn away from sin, you look to Christ, and here's where you find strength. How has Christ loved you? Okay, husband, bride. Okay, it kind of gets a little weird here. We're not talking about gay stuff here, but um, husband, Jesus, bride, church. And you're a part of that, okay? How has Jesus been to you? Has he been gracious with you? Has he been patient with you? Has he been overly burdensome to you or demanding of you? Uh, or is he taking care of you? Has he loved you and has he been consistent with you? Has he been a friend who sticks closer than a brother? Has he uh, said, well, uh, you're not my brother anymore because uh, you're not doing what God's called you to do, so I don't want to be associated with you anymore? Or has he stuck with you through thick and thin no matter what? Has he con continued to pursue you even through your sin? And the answer to all those things is, of course, Jesus has been so kind. And so we learn how to be husbands from how Jesus is taking care of us. Okay, we'll do that in your home. Now, I want to love my wife as Christ has even loved me. And then uh, the positive commands, live with understanding. Live with understanding to your wife. And don't expect her to be like you. And then uh, pray to your father. And as we walk in repentance in life, we, we find that communion with God is available right in front of you. That your prayers don't have to be hindered. Your, your prayers don't have to feel like they're hitting the ceiling here. Where you're in your prayer closet at home, you're in your study, you're driving in the car and you're praying and you're like, what am, I, what am I doing here? Your prayers don't have to feel like that. But if you're not going to repent in these areas, it's going to just continue and perpetually feel like that. And so we live with our wives in an understanding way. We honor her as the weaker vessel and then we pray to our Father. So with that said, let's pray.